Good morning. It finally happened. A moment that I've been hearing about for my entire life happened this morning. It was early this morning. I walked from the auditorium to the office building. It was early. And as I was walking to the office, I saw a bird. It was early. He had a worm. I saw it with my own eyes. And as I walked up, he flew away with a worm in his mouth. And I thought, my life is complete. Where do we go from here? 45 years older, I've peaked. It's over. Everybody talks about the early bird getting the worm. Nobody talks about how the worm should have slept in. Right? Anyways, I I saw this epic thing this morning. We're going to look at a rather epic text this morning. Uh, it's, it's considered to be, uh, by some theologians, the most brilliant sermon the Apostle Paul, uh, ever, rec- that was ever recorded by the Apostle Paul. And so I invite you to grab your Bibles if you would. If you don't have one, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And like we do every week, I'm gonna invite you to hold up your Bibles and we're gonna say a creed together. Uh, we do this every week and the, the danger of doing anything every week like this is that it becomes ritual and routine. And so I'm going to I'm going to ask you to pay attention this morning because we're actually going to pause in the middle of it. And I have a question for you. OK, so let's not just rush through this. Let's be engaged. You ready? You ready? Pay attention. All right. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Hold on. Do you really believe that? Like, can we just speed bump for a second? Do you really believe this is breathed out by God? If we believe the first part, we have to believe the second part. Because if this is God's word and we really receive it, we can't walk away unchanged. One amen, I'll take it. Let's start over again. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind And give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Acts chapter 17. It's page 871 if you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you. Last week, we covered almost all of Acts chapter 16, which is a dramatic increase in speed since January when we started going through the book of Acts. Well, this morning again, uh, we're going to cover, God willing, all of chapter 17 this morning. And we're going to look at this chapter. We're going to read all of these verses together. And so uh, if you're a guest today, you're not used to that much scripture in a church or whatever. We really think this book is where it's at, not not what I have to say. And so we're actually going to take our time and work through this chapter this morning. Uh, but don't worry, we'll get back to moving really slow next week because I think we're only going to cover 11 verses next week. But we're going to jump in this morning to Acts chapter 17. Oops, I'm still on Acts chapter 16. We were there so long, my Bible automatically opened to Acts chapter 16. It took us like three weeks. Okay. When they had passed through Amphipolis, such an awesome name. What did they call them if they were from there? Amphibians? And I, 
I just thought of that right now in this moment. I just made that dad joke up right here in the house of the Lord. Okay. And Apollonia, that's where they got dog food. They came, I made that one up right on the spot too. They came to Thessalonica. We've heard of that one before. If you've been in church any amount of time, you know there's two books of the Bible written to the church in Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. I do think it's worth noting. I want to say this before we move on. Thessalonica was a major city, an important city. The reason you haven't heard of those other two cities we just mentioned, uh, the Apostle Paul kind of slipped through. They were smaller towns. As he's planting churches here in the beginning of this thing called Ecclesia, he intentionally slowed down when he was in cities of influence. And I only point that out this morning because we live in the fourth largest metropolitan area in the United States of America. What would happen if we really saw a move of God in our midst here? What could happen around the globe if we really saw an outpouring, outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God in this place? Anybody else amazed by that imagination? Like, God, what, what could he do? Because here's the deal. Uh, the, the United States of America might not want Texas's influence. They just want our affluence. But the reality is, if we could experience a move of God in our midst, I think it could change our entire culture. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. There's a couple things about this verse I want us to slow down and look at. The first one is I want you to notice that apparently it was Paul's custom to go to the synagogue. Last week we talked about how uh, he went and looked for a synagogue and there wasn't one. And so he went out and found uh, in Philippi where there were some ladies gathered together praying. But it was this custom where he would go where people had some kind of knowledge of faith. And he would begin to explain Jesus to them. That was his custom. And he would do that for three Sabbaths. So for three weeks. And I want you to notice it says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. I believe our faith is a reasonable faith. I don't believe we put a blindfold on and ignore logical questions in order to trust in Jesus. I believe we find the answer to the questions in the person of Jesus. And 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 that there's been questions I've not found a full answer to. There's plenty of things that I've had to operate in faith with. But I haven't had to check my brain at the door to follow Jesus. Despite what the culture might say about our faith. It is a reasonable faith. We're able to reason. Now, not reason in the power of our own flesh and based on our own logic. Notice we reason from the scriptures. So the source information is important. We're we're responding with reasonable logic from the scriptures. And and here's, here's why I think that's so important. I just believe with all my heart that this book is the only way to make sense out of life. If I'm going to find any reason... To the mess and the chaos and the confusion that is my existence on this broken planet, then I'm going to have to find that reason in the scriptures. That's not just where the Apostle Paul found his reasoning. He then reasons with others. I believe the hope of life making any sense for the whole world is found in the scriptures. Not just for me and you, but for my next door neighbor who might not even believe this book. 
For your coworker in the next cubicle who might not even believe in the person of Jesus, I believe we're only going to make sense of life if we look not to self, but to the scripture. And we're going to see the apostle Paul reasoned with them. We're going to see that again later in the chapter as we get there. This was his custom was to try to make sense out of life from God's word. Isn't that a good starting point? Man, let's not rush past that. Praise God. And so, um, he's in Thessalonica. For three weeks. And such a significant church starts that they got two books of the Bible written to them. Three weeks. That's pretty impressive. Right? Like, I've been here 13 and a half years and I've written none of the Bible, Connor. I'm a failure. (laughs) Three weeks! Is that incredible? That's the power of God's word. Come on, somebody. Like, in three weeks, he explains Jesus to these people who have somewhat of a foundation. He started in the synagogue, and boom, light bulb comes on, Holy Spirit's poured out, and a congregation takes form after three weeks. Wowzers. I just think that's incredible. And he says something to the church at Thessalonica. You can, uh, if you want to read First Thessalonians chapter one, the first half of the chapter later this week, you can you can experience the context that he's writing to here in the beginning, uh, or that he's uh, meeting here in the beginning of Acts chapter seventeen. He writes to them about how he thanks God every time he remembers them. And he talks about how they were partnered together with them, Paul and Silas, and the other brothers and sisters traveling in the gospel. And then he says this, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and at Kai, remember the, he had the vision of the man from Macedonia, God's word has not just sounded forth in your region, he said, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. The planet is different because you receive the word of God. Wow. That the, the word of God has sounded forth. The, the word sounded forth there in the original language is just one word, not two different words. It's et, ex, ekeo. Ex means like out of. And then ekeo is where we get the word echo. To echo out. It's to reverb for all of your financial needs. Go to reverbfinancial.com. I don't, I don't know if that's your website. To reverberate. That God's word echoed, not just in their hearts, not just in their homes, not just in their region, but the whole world felt the reverb of God's word because they received it. How incredible is that? That we would reason with the scriptures in such a way that it echoes forth, it resounds in sound waves, not just in our hearts, but in the hearts of those around us. Wow. So here's what he's reasoning within from the scriptures. He's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead. If the Messiah died for you, maybe your sins are forgiven. But if he dies for you and raises from the dead, you can have confidence that your sins are forgiven. The Messiah needed to do both. 
in saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, he's that Messiah. He is that Christ, the one who has died for you and the one who has risen again. And that's our whole message, right? Faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our whole hope. Amen? Some of them, verse 4, were persuaded. Some were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Some believed. Some were persuaded. Every time we reason with the scriptures with someone and point them to Jesus, every time we do that, some will respond and some will reject. That's just how that works. Some will receive that. Some will be threatened by it. Some will receive it and some will mock it. Some will receive it and some will ponder and and wonder if they can really believe it for themselves. Nonetheless, we keep proclaiming Jesus. It's the only way to make sense of anything is to continue to proclaim him. So here again, we have what we keep reading in the book of Acts as we read good news followed by the word but. But the Jews were jealous again. I wish so bad Luke had a personality more like mine because he would say, for like the bazillionth time already, they were jealous. And taking some of the wicked men of the rabble. (laughs) What does that even mean? I have no idea. So for those of you who have a King James Bible with you this morning, this reads... Certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. That's greatness. That's so awesome. After taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, which is where they were saying, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. They couldn't find them. They dragged out Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. And I want you to see what the accusation is here. Shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. And goodness gracious, now they've come here also. What are we going to do? What an incredible testimony. What an incredible testimony. People who didn't know anything about them, they've just heard rumors. (laughs) that these men have turned the world upside down. And they're threatened by that. They're afraid of that. Jason has received them. And they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. I'm just going to tell you, if anybody ever wants to criticize me, for declaring that there's King Jesus and he will turn your world upside down, bring on the accusation. Bring on the confrontation. Bring on the criticism. What an incredible testimony. But I want to, so notice, they said that they turned the world upside down. Notice that that's not being said by a believer. Because the reality is they didn't. They didn't turn the world upside down. And their message didn't turn the world upside down. Listen, friends, we've turned the world upside down in our flesh. They came proclaiming a message that puts the world right side back up. 
right? Things are already upside down, right? As upside down as our culture is today, the fact that, that we are so confused about so many things in our culture today, the fact that we call loving correction to harmful error, hate speech, the, the fact that we've lost our way so much. Listen, we're not seeking to turn the world upside down. She's already done a great job at that. We're trying to reason from the scriptures to point to Jesus to turn the mess right side up. The world's done a fine job turning itself upside down. And the only way, I want you to hear this. So we're, we're reasoning from the scriptures this morning as the scriptures are talking about reasoning with itself. We're reasoning from the scriptures this morning that the only way life makes sense, the only way life turns right side up, is when we submit to the authority of King Jesus. That's it. Life doesn't make sense when I try to force the world to revolve around me and my wants and my wishes and the desires of my flesh. Life only makes any kind of reasonable sense in this mess when I lay down my agenda and the worship of my desires and I submit to the glory and authority of King Jesus. And the more we make much of Jesus, the more there's a hope that this mess might turn right side up. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They gave them a ticket. They gave them a speeding ticket for talking about Jesus. Interesting. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue because that was their custom. And I want you to notice verse 11. We're going to slow down here. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What an amazing testimony of these Jewish men and women in Berea. They received the word with eagerness. Does that describe how we interact with this book? That we are eager to hear God's word? And then daily to examine the scriptures and see if these things are so. And I'm just telling you, listen to me, friend. I'm not bashed on anybody. That's not happening in our culture today. And the reason I know that that's not happening in our culture today is because there's a lot of people saying a lot of things in the name of Jesus that if you examine the scriptures, they are not so. And nobody seems to be confronting that. Matter of fact, we're just ordering their newest book, buying them a new jet. Listen, I'm telling you, let's get in the word and examine whether or not everything we hear is actually true. Because despite what the world says, just because you believe it and feel it doesn't mean it's true. We believe there's such a thing as true and false still. We're crazy that way. And when I say something, it might be my truth, but that doesn't mean it's the truth. So let's be eager to receive God's word and examine whether the mess we're hearing in this upside down world is actually true or not. Moving on. 
Many of them, therefore, believed. Not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Yeah, when, when you're not getting your way, all you got to do is just provoke a little more chaos in the culture and it might drown out the noise of Jesus. That sounds familiar. The brothers immediately sent Paul on his way to the sea. Maybe these jealous Jewish leaders can't swim. <laughs> but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. After receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. He went to Athens. Athens Athens at this time, Lance and I were talking this morning, it, it was not as big as it had been in the generation before them, but it was still as influential as it had ever been. It was considered the intellectual headquarters of the world, the known world at the time. Athens would be like Oxford, Harvard, Yale, and Texas, all, <laughs> all rolled into one. I actually intended to give an Aggie shout out there, but but they came short in the fourth quarter. All that hollering about God's word, it was like crickets up in here. Mention college football. Okay. It is the intellectual headquarters of the world, at least they claim to be. They sure thought of themselves to be. The intellectual elite. But it wasn't just the intellectual elite. It also was the entertainment elite. This is the home uh, beginning moment, origin moment of the Olympics. Right? There's the, the Colosseums and the games. And so it was a center for art as well. So creativity and, and athletic performance. And But here's the thing else about Athens. They were really proud about their religious diversity. Historians estimate that at this time in history, there was more than 30,000 statutes to lowercase g gods throughout Athens. 30,000. Not all of them had necessarily temples, but at least shrines and places of worship where you could sacrifice to them or do whatever They required of you to interact with them. 30,000, right? It is a spiritual polygamy on a whole nother level. 30,000 different gods. This is where the Apostle Paul ends up because we serve a God who closes doors and opens doors because he's in the business of open hearts. And God plants him right in this influential and important town. Now, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so we realize when he says full of idols, he actually means, like that's that's not hyperbole here on the part of Dr. Luke. Like literally everywhere you look, there's another idol. And look again at this word. So he reasoned. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those 
who happened to be there. When it says he, he reasoned in the marketplace, the marketplace was not where you went shopping. In, in the ancient world, the marketplace was a place for uh, social interaction. It was the, the cultural center of a city. So don't picture the Apostle Paul being super creepy in like the shampoo aisle at Target. Hey, I want to talk to you about Jesus. <laughs> like, it's not what it means. It's also not him. <laughs> She's like, no, I wasn't thinking that. Thank you, you psycho. Okay. Um, this also means he's not standing there. And I'm not saying this is bad. Some people feel really called to do this. I'm not bashing. But this is not him street preaching either. Like this is not him with a bullhorn just sounding words into a crowd. That This is a cultural conversation he's having in the marketplace. That's the real reason we slowed down to say that. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Sweet. We needed 30,000 and one gods. How great that there's another preacher from some foreign god to come here. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. It's kind of, that was kind of his thing. That's what he preached everywhere he went. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. This is Mars Hill. If you ever heard of Mars Hill, I've never been to Mars Hill, uh, but this, that, that's what he's talking about here. They took him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching, this new, new to them, this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time, I want you to hear this, in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It's as though they keep having conversations And they keep building new statues because something's missing. Because something doesn't make sense. We better keep trying to figure this out. And I believe that's true for all of us, apart from a life submitted to King Jesus. So we're going to have to keep trying to figure this thing out. Something just isn't going to make sense. Something just isn't going to fit. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. A couple things I would say uh, about this sermon we're about to read. Again, uh, for sure the most creative sermon the Apostle Paul ever preached. Um, If we read it without any commentary, without pausing, it takes about two minutes to read. The thing about Mars Hill was... There was never a two-minute conversation. They would go on for hours and hours and hours. One scholar that I read said he believes that every sentence of this recorded sermon represents about 20 minutes of content. The Apostle Paul was not known to be short-winded either. So he fit well in this moment where he's explaining. Um, One pastor said this is basically the outline (laughs) 
for the, the talk that he delivered that day. And even with the outline, we see he starts off by saying, I perceive that you're very religious because every time I turn around, I bump into an idol. And I, all I want to point out there is simply this. Can, can we just restate and reaffirm as a congregation that kindness matters? Not just being right. Not just having the answer to the question that maybe nobody's asking. Kindness matters. He did not get up and say, you bunch of pagans. Right? You bunch of hell-bound, devil-worshipping, like... He didn't scream, yell, bash people. We see a lot of times the Apostle Paul was extremely sarcastic. It's one of the reasons he's one of my favorite teachers in the Bible. But he's only ever sarcastic with religious people. Here we see him being humble and kind and gracious and meeting them where they are. And I just think that's worth bringing attention to. I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. How cool is that? He said, man, I'm walking through and I see you've got this altar to to the, so maybe this supreme, important, God, that we haven't figured out yet. With our 30,000 other ones, we might have missed one. Maybe a really important one. So if you can remember back to to prom, they had a fallback God. You know what I'm talking about? If Johnny asks me out to prom, I really want to go with him. But if he doesn't, I'm willing to go with Fred. That was the fallback. Right? Right? Some of you were like, yeah, I married my fallback. I'm just kidding. They had the fallback God. They had the, in case it doesn't work out with these other 30,000, we don't want to make the gods angry or be missing out on some good gift they have with us. So we're going to create this altar to the unknown God. And I love that the Apostle Paul takes that curiosity and that confusion and uses it as an opportunity to proclaim truth. It's extraordinary. It's brilliant. And then he says this about his God. Because if, if you're reading in the text, we just switch now to a capital G. <laughs> the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. He does not need our offerings, nor can he be contained in our fancy little temples. How brilliant. He's saying here it seems reasonable (laughs) that a God who created everything can't really be contained in a piece of gold or stone or marble. He's a glorious and majestic and unfathomable God. Not contained in our little religious systems. And he sure doesn't need us to make him a sandwich. Right? 
He's not sitting there going, I wish they'd bring me an offering today. Otherwise, what am I going to do? Think about the neediness of a God who waits on us to serve him. Our God does not need our service. He invites us to serve him so that we can experience true meaning in life. Like in his goodness, we, we have a God who demands allegiance so that we can flourish. Not because he has needs that have to be met. I love that uh, J.D. Greer pointed out. The Apostle Paul is, is reasoning with them. He starts off by talking about the creator God. And then he's going to work his way towards our response to him. And the reason that's significant, I've never noticed that before in the text uh, without him pointing it out. I don't know that I would have seen it this time either, even though I've preached this text several times. All of Greek and Roman philosophy started with man and then formed a view of God. And the Apostle Paul starts off by forming a view of God so that we can make sense of who we are and what we should do. It's almost as though he's saying, hey, we can make this all about you if you'd like, but it's probably not going to make any sense out of all of this for you. There is a, a Greek philosopher, Protagoras is his name, and this is his most famous quote. Man is the measure of all things. How's that for a bold statement? Man is the measure of all things. And the Apostle Paul shows up and goes, yeah, your ruler's broken. No, it's all about him. Only when we orient our life to King Jesus does any of this make sense. It's not about us. It's not about what we get from our gods. It's not about our entertainment. It's not about our intelligence and education. It's all about him and his glory. He starts with God. Verse 26 He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You see that authority he's he's describing the true God with here? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is not actually far off from each one of us. He's saying a couple things here that I think are worth noting. The first one is, in this time in history, every uh, clique of people, every little tribe, every little culture had their own little deity. And so part of what the Apostle Paul is explaining here is, no, there's one God who created everyone who's ever existed on the face of the earth. He's not limited to a culture. He's not limited to a language. He's not limited to a context. He's God. But I think there's something more important that he's saying here that I think points to we're missing something. The Athenians had all of these gods, and yet they kept having conversations because something was missing. He's pointing to this idea That there is a God who exists where seeking after him is its own fulfillment. Let me explain what I mean. 
all Greek and all Roman gods were worshipped so that they would give you something. All gods offered you something. You picked which god you worship today or gods that you worship today based on what you wanted or what you thought you needed, which is still true in much of the world today. Most world uh, cultures around the world that have multiple gods, you pick the god you're worshiping today based on your wants or your perceived needs. At this time in history, some of the most well-known gods in Athens at that day would have been Artemis, the goddess of prosperity or wealth, the goddess of bling. So you worshiped her if you wanted to get a raise, right? You worshiped her if you wanted more wealth. There was the goddess Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom. And I love that they were smart enough to know that if there was going to be a deity for being intelligent, it had to be a female and not a dude. As a matter of fact, historians tell us that in her temple, there was a large uh, picture, if you will, of Zeus's head being split open and she was being taken out of his mind. She was the brains behind Zeus, the main god. And let's be honest, if there's going to be a Zeus, it's probably going to be because there's an Athena somewhere up in his head. So if you want to be smart, the politicians were known to uh, devoutly worship Athena. They wanted more wisdom for their political reign. And then there was the goddess Nike, right? This is where the uh, Olympic Games began. This is where the competitions were. So if you wanted to be victorious, you worshipped Nike. Not so far-fetched, right? We still kind of do that today. And then there was the goddess Aphrodite, which was the goddess of sexuality. She's also the goddess of fertility, but most people did not worship her because they were trying to procreate. And so if you wanted to have more sexual encounters, then you would go worship at that temple. How significant do you think that temple was? Yeah, is one of the most prominent ones in Athens at the time. J.D. Greer also pointed out that there was a goddess called Cloacina. She was the goddess of the Athenian sewer system. And I just wonder, how did you offer your offering to her? (laughs) What did that worship look like, right? Some of you dudes, your wives have asked you to light a candle in the bathroom, but it was not to worship Cloacina, right? (laughs) So I don't know what they tried to get from her, maybe Keep things not clogged up or something. I don't know. There have been times our boys have clogged toilets. I've been praying to somebody, dear God, don't let this come back up. You know, I don't know. I don't know what they asked of her. The point of that is this. In the, in the Athen mind, in the Athenian mind, you only worshiped a God for what you could get from them. 
And the Apostle Paul is like, there's this one true living God that seeking after him is its own reward. The reward is him. Not the trinkets, not the gifts, not the stuff. But to pursue him is the gift. To be drawn to him is the reward. Not that he's far off. It's not that he's playing hide and seek. Like his temple isn't like really small and hidden in the corner. And I don't know where I'm going to find the temple that actually satisfies. He's saying, no, no, no. Let me preach Jesus to you who died and rose again, which is really good news because he's available to you today. And only he can satisfy the longings of the human heart. We can worship 30,000 other things. I'm just telling you, only Jesus can satisfy our hearts. It's in the pursuit of him that we find our life. To pursue anything else is less than. And even to pursue him to get something from him is less than. He is his own reward. He's not actually far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Here, the Apostle Paul quotes from two Greek poets. He's not quoting scripture. He's quoting modern Poets that they would know in their secular culture, right? This would be in the middle of a sermon, like you're, you're dropping Bruno Mars lyrics into your sermon, right? Cardi B lyrics into your sermon. Okay, um, Bob Dylan lyrics into your sermon. The Rolling Stones there. Just trying to make sure we get everybody in the room. Right? Bob Denver for all of our... Okay, right? He's trying to use the efforts of a culture to understand how to make sense out of life by saying there's an answer to your questions and his name is Jesus. And he's where we find life. And our life comes from him. Being then... God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. If we want a God to worship, can we please not worship one that we can create ourselves? Isn't that brilliant? Man, Paul was on it on this day. What a brilliant conclusion. I read a great quote in preparation for this sermon that said this. If God were small enough to be fully understood, he would not be big enough to be truly worshipped. If God were small enough to be fully understood, he would not be big enough to be truly worshipped. We serve a glorious God who can't be contained in our gold or silver or precious stone or in idols made by the best imagination humankind has to offer, we serve a glorious God. 
And then he says this. So he's working his way to our response. Ready? Here it is. The times of ignorance, God overlooked. The, the days where we didn't know better. God overlooked that. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has sent Jesus in human flesh to live among us, to lay his life down for us, and to take it up again, it is time to repent of self-living and to orient to the true king, to bow before the authority of King Jesus. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The reason Jesus is raised from the dead is because there's coming a day where we will see him face to face. We we sang that lyric, and I don't know how engaged you were with the lyric. When, When he comes with trumpet sound, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone faultless faultless without fault to stand before the throne I don't know about you but I'm not feeling very faultless today when I look to me I see a lot of faults but when I'm standing dressed in the righteousness of Christ because of his death on my behalf and his resurrection to rescue me. I will stand before that throne one day and I will be viewed as righteous as Jesus himself. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And they will. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. Please tell me more. Can we have coffee tomorrow? Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. And I just want to say in that That snapshot of those verses is the human experience every time we try to make reasonable sense of life by pointing to Jesus. People will sometimes reject that. Sometimes people will reflect on that. Sometimes people will receive that. How they respond to us reasonably making much of King Jesus through the scriptures, how they respond, that part's not up to us. We're supposed to live in a culture where we consistently and faithfully reason with the scriptures to point to King Jesus. And whether somebody chooses to reject or reflect or receive is between them and the Lord. So we're not manipulating We're not on a score system. We're not on a pyramid scheme. We're just being faithful to make much of Jesus in a culture that is already upside down. 
and in desperate need of being made right. It says the Apostle Paul walked through Athens and was provoked by what he saw. He saw an upside down world full of all the wrong kinds of worship. You know what the common denominator is in all of those idols that he saw? The worship of self. See, if I only worship a goddess because of what she can give me, I'm actually worshiping me. So through all of their forms of false worship, through all their entertainment, through all of their intellectual enlightenment, it was all ultimately the worship of self. And he sees that. And you know what he did not do? He did not get jaded by it. He didn't get on social media and bash the culture for being oriented towards self. He didn't become part of the culture and let it distort his heart. He walked in the midst of the culture in an understanding and kind and gracious way. And spoke in an understandable way how it's only reasonable to turn to King Jesus to make sense of any of this. If, if life doesn't make much sense to you today, I would ask you this. Are there areas of your life that are oriented towards stealth instead of store, towards King Jesus? Are you reasoning with the scriptures? And then I would ask this. We asked this question last week. Are there people in your life that you think God's on the move, opening their hearts? And I think that question is worth asking again this week because I have never believed stronger than I do today that the world around us is upside down and in desperate need of a reasonable story of hope. Of a loving Savior who died for us and who rose again. This whole chunk or treat thing, man, like we are not in the business of giving out candy or putting on events. But we are in the business of trying to have conversations with people that otherwise we would never meet. So if giving out some candy and putting on a ridiculous costume helps start one conversation, then bring on the cavities, man. Let's go. Bring on the sugar rush and the sugar crash. Let's do it. Because we believe the only way to make sense of life is by looking to King Jesus. Some people are going to receive that. Some people are going to reflect on it. Some people are going to reject it. But may we continue to be faithful to make much of him.